Well, that's exciting. Those announcements were exciting. The Compass 2020 video, I love watching that. And I get really excited every time I hear cafe. <laughs> I don't know. It's so sad. But the older I get, the more I love food. And the older I get, it, it seems harder and harder for me to get my house completely in order the way that I used to be when I was younger and had just more energy and really more time, more time on my hands to do those uh, real thorough house cleanings that I used to love to do so much. And I just don't have the opportunity to do as often as I would like to. So the last couple weeks of August, I was able to stay home and get my house clean. And, you know, not just the dusting and vacuuming, but the kind of clean where you take every drawer and pour it out and you take all your closets and pull everything out of the closets and just work through those things and try to organize them and clean them and get rid of the stuff that you don't want and just all that deep cleaning. And it was crazy. When I started, I started with my personal closet in my room alone and it took me a day and a half to work through that thing. And I, I have one of those shark vacuums from Costco where you have like a little um, see-through canister for the dirt. Well, when I started with that, that thing was clear. And by the time I got through my closet alone, it was filled with dust and dirt and cat hair and all sorts of interesting things. And I don't even know how we ended up with a cat because I'm allergic to cats. <laughs> but cat hair was filling that canister. And the more that I began to clean, the more I realized how dirty things had gotten. I mean, when we just, you know, leave life to itself, things get dirty. Things can get really messy. And, you know, pouring those things out, I look at those piles and think, can I just get a lighter fluid and a match and throw it on here because I don't want to deal with this stuff. And at the same time, I feel like I have nothing, right? I'll go to get dressed and think I have nothing to wear. And yet I've got these piles of things that I don't want, but I won't get rid of them either because they're going to come back in style or I'm going, going to fit in those jeans again. <laughs> so it's the strangest thing working through that cleaning process and realizing how messy, how sometimes out of control and how dirty things get, uh, which is why I love really to have people come over to my house at night. <laughs> it's always great at night. Take them outside, turn on those lights, light a few candles. Everything looks so glorious, right? I mean, even we look good in candlelight. <laughs> but you turn that light back on and wow, I mean, the imperfections are evident. And as that light gets brighter and we look closer, we realize that, yeah, there's some dirt there, dirt that should be dealt with. And the same thing's true for us spiritually. Uh, the closer that we draw to God, the more that the light goes on, the more that we realize things are dirty, things are messy, things need to be cleaned up. And we can't just, you know, get lighter fluid in a match at that point. We've got to deal with it. And as we study 2 Samuel this year, we're going to see that as our hero, in a sense, David, as he journeyed through life, he got dirty. And yet, he was known as the man after God's own heart. Uh, we see that recorded in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 13, when Paul was talking to a group of uh, Jewish people there, reasoning with them, explaining to them the history of their people. He got to the point where Saul was rejected, King Saul, the first Saul of Israel, and David was chosen by God to be that king, to be the king of Israel. In Acts 13, 22, uh, recounting this history, Paul said, when he had removed him, Saul, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, so God said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my 
heart who will do all my will. So how do we live like David? How do we be women who walk through this life and pick up dirt and get messy and at the same time be women who are after God's heart? What is the key here? At studying 2 Samuel, I think we're going to see that the key to David's spiritual success was that he was marked by repentance. He was a man who repented. And the scripture reveals these two sides of David. We've got this guy who is on fire for God. He's courageous. He's passionate. He loves God. He wants to serve and obey God and do things right. And at the same time, he was a man who battled with sin and continually needed to repent. And scholars say that what made David such a spiritual success was his continual, heartfelt, genuine repentance. And as we talk about repentance, you might wonder, well, what really is repentance? Repentance is a change. It's a total change. It involves both our thinking and our actions. It involves our thinking and our behavior, our attitudes and the choices that we make are involved in our repentance. Repentance means a change. When we change our mind and we change our behavior regarding sin and regarding righteousness, it's when we change from our perspective to God's perspective. When we say, God, I'm going to think the way that you think, and I'm going to behave the way that you behave, rather than thinking the way that I think and behaving the way that I want to behave. And this is what Jesus taught from the very beginning. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, when Jesus came on the scene, uh, it says in Mark 1, 14, that Jesus came into Galilee, and he was proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God. And what he said in Mark 1.15 is the time is fulfilled. Now is the time. The kingdom of God is at hand. How do we respond? He said, repent and believe in the gospel. And one professor that I had in school at Talbot said that repentance and belief, it's like two sides of a coin. You can't have a coin without the two sides. On a coin, we've got the heads and the tails, right? You can't take one side off. And it's the same here. Repentance and belief, they go together as the right response to the gospel. What we do, the right response when we hear the good news of Jesus. And you might think, yes, that's great. I agree. I am a Christian. I have believed and I have repented. And I'm confident that most of us here are Christians. But that doesn't mean that we're done repenting. Uh, just because we believe once and we enter into the kingdom of God through repentance and faith doesn't mean we stop believing. And just because we've repented once and we enter into the kingdom of God through repentance and faith doesn't mean that we're done repenting. We don't stop believing because we believe. We enter into a journey of believing, a lifetime of believing. And we don't stop repenting because we once repented. We enter into a new lifetime of repentance, a journey of repentance. And Jesus explained this to his disciples in an interesting way in John chapter 13. You can turn there if you want to, John chapter 13. If not, just listen along or note it down and look it up later. But in John chapter 13, uh, the chapter begins with Jesus uh, at a dinner with his disciples near the time of the Passover. So it was right before he was getting ready to become the ultra, ultimate sacrifice on their behalf. And it says that he knew that his time was short he knew that the Father had given all things over to him and he was going to be with God. And he was eating together with his disciples and he rose up from the table. And the scripture says that he took off his outer garments. 
So it's like he took off his jacket, his coat, his sweater, and he put a towel around his waist. He put a towel around his waist, and then the text says that he poured water into a basin, and he began personally to wash his disciples' feet and then dry their feet with a towel, which was an act of service, something that a servant would do for those who were over him, so to speak. So in John 13, verse 6, when he came to Peter, Peter realized how, in a sense, upside down all of this was. And Peter said, Lord, do you wash my feet? Uh, that was a question, like, this is absurd. Peter was saying, like, you're the Lord, you're the master, uh, you're the one that I serve. Why are you washing my feet? And Jesus said to him in verse 7 of John 13, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said in verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. I'm not going to let this happen. And Jesus answered and said, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. This washing that takes place, this cleansing that takes place, when we enter into that relationship with Jesus through repentance and faith, when we put our trust in him and turn from our sins, we're washed, we're cleansed. And Peter heard that in verse 9, and he said, Oh, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Wash all of me. And Jesus said to him in verse 10, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And he said, and you are clean, but not every one of you. A Judas was there, and Jesus knew that Judas was not in a right relationship with him. Judas hadn't responded to the truth with repentance and faith, but Peter did. Peter was clean, but Jesus said, you need to wash your feet. Because Peter would walk through life like they did, and as they wore sandals on those dusty roads, their feet would get dirty. And when they came in to dinners or home at the end of a long day, they would need to wash their feet. And Jesus is saying here, as we walk through life, our feet are going to get dirty. And we need to wash our feet. We're already clean if we're Christians. We've entered into a relationship with him through repentance and faith and we're cleansed. But because we're cleansed, we continue to cleanse our feet. We wash our feet. We enter into this lifetime of repentance. We repent initially and we are saved. And because we're saved, we repent. We repent. It's part of our sanctification process. It doesn't make us saved. It doesn't hold on to our salvation, but it's the natural outcome of being saved. People who have repented are people who continually repent. And we see the same truth in John. John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. John chapter 1, John was written to Christians, explaining to Christians how they could have assurance of salvation. It says in John 1 verse 8, if we say we have no sin, no dirt on our feet, so to speak, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to wash us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So even though we've entered into this relationship with Jesus through repentance and faith where we're saved, we're positionally clean. As we live life, we get dirt on our feet and we need to repent of that too. The way that we battle with sin, the way that we're quick to get our feet washed, to come before God and say, God, I have sinned. I need to repent. I need to get my thinkings and my actions right. That's what makes us like David, women after God's own heart. 
women who are the women that God call, has called us to be. So you might think, well, when did David repent? When did he get that dirt on his feet and repent, do whatever it takes to get right with God, to get cleansed? Well, we're going to look at five key times real quickly in David's life when he was confronted with temptation or sin or failure and he repented as a result. We're going to begin with 1 Samuel 24. First uh, Samuel chapter 24, which was in the last book that we studied. And if you weren't here for First Samuel, don't worry about it. There are so many great truths in Second Samuel. We're going to just dive in and learn all of these wonderful things together. But in First Samuel chapter 24, uh, David was on the run from Saul. Uh, Saul was the king at the time. And Saul had been set aside from God's perspective because of his disobedience. David had been anointed as the king by the prophet Samuel years before this. And so David was there. He knew that he was supposed to be the king, but he wasn't the king yet. He wasn't the king. And he was waiting he was waiting while God still allowed Saul to remain as the king. So David was on the run from Saul because Saul knew that David was going to be the next king and Saul began to hate and despise David. So David was running and waiting and living as an outcast, living as a refugee, living in exile with a band of men and he was at times growing weary. I mean, years of this, running and running, even though God had made this promise to him, waiting on God's timing. Well, he was waiting, and at one point, he and his men were hiding in a cave, and Saul, this man who despised him and was trying to take his life, entered into the cave and didn't know that David was in there. And David's men said, this is your time. So David snuck up to Saul and he cut the corner of his robe off. And in a way, David was being defiant there, saying, you're the king, but I know I'm the rightful king. He cut the corner of his robe off to show that he could have taken his life if he wanted to. And right after, uh, 1 Samuel 24, 5 and 6 shows us that David's heart was struck. He knew that what he did was wrong. And he repented. In 1 Samuel 24, 5 and 6, it says, Afterward, David's heart struck him because he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So even though David was growing weary, he was tired, he needed to keep doing good. And that's our first point here, is we need to continue to do good. We need to continue to do good. And you might say, well, I can see how that was a point for David, right? But how is that a point for me? I mean, this was David's journey. This was David's life. But you know, 1 Corinthians 10 gives us some insight on that. 1 Corinthians 10, chapter 6, for example, uh, talks about uh, referencing the things that happened to God's people, uh, to Israel, when they were journeying through the wilderness with Moses. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. These things, these Old Testament things, these Old Testament accounts and stories, things that have been recorded by God for our learning. And ex that's exactly what the text goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. It says, these things happened to them as an example. They were to be an example for us. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So the text is saying there in 1 Corinthians 10 that all these Old Testament accounts, 
These accounts, these histories of these uh, peoples and David and his life and what he did and didn't do and the way he responded, when he responded rightly and wrongly, this was all written down. It's recorded for our instruction. It's an example to us so that we can learn from it, so that we can learn more about ourselves and more about God and respond rightly when we face the same situations. And David was called here to continue to do good. Even though he was growing weary, he was hiding in a cave. Although he was the promised king, he was tired. But God expected him to do good. And you know, the same thing is true for us. 2 Thessalonians 3.13. 2 Thessalonians 3.13 says, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. When we find ourselves in a place where we feel weary, we feel like we just can't do it anymore, we need to respond like David and repent. We say, you know what? I feel weary, I'm exhausted, I'm tired, but I need to keep on doing good. David had a specific area that he was battling at that time. He was on the run from King Saul, waiting on God's timing, waiting for God to fulfill his promise to him. And that was his area that he needed to keep on doing good. And we have areas in our life too that we need to keep on doing good. Areas where we're tempted to grow weary. Times when we get up in the morning and we say, okay, God, I know what you're calling me to do. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to do good. And then suddenly within a half an hour, right, circumstances just bombard us and we're tempted to say, forget it. I'm not going to do good anymore. I can't handle this. And when we catch ourselves in that position, when we find ourselves there mentally, we need to repent like David did and say, Lord, I need to keep doing good. Your word, your spirit, you're calling me to continue to do good. Well, as we fast forward to 2 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're going to find David. Uh, David on one late afternoon hanging out. We're going to see where he should not have been instead of where he should have been. And he was up on the roof of his palace and he could oversee all of the areas around him. And he saw with his eyes a beautiful woman. Uh, she was gorgeous. Her name was Bathsheba and she was married to a man named Uriah who was actually out battling for David for Israel and for David. And David was so enthralled by her beauty, he wanted to take her, even though he knew it was wrong. We know he knew it was wrong because he had the law of God. He had the Pentateuch. He had the first five books of the Bible, the writings of Moses. And in those, Exodus gives us the Ten Commandments. And the 10th of the Ten Commandments says in Exodus 20, 17, you shall not covet, you shall not long for your neighbor's house. You shall not covet, you shall not long for your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You shall not long for those things. David knew that, but he longed for Uriah's wife anyways, and he took her. And God raised up uh, the prophet Nathan, this godly man at the time, to come to David and to give him this brilliant parable about a rich man who took a poor man's one ewe lamb to slaughter it to prepare a dinner for a guest. And when David heard this parable about this rich man who took the poor man's one ewe lamb, David was just livid. And he said, this man needs to be punished. And Nathan said to him, David, you're the man. Referring back to when David took Uriah's wife as his own. And David knew that it was true. And immediately in 2 Samuel 12, 13, David said to Nathan, 
2 Samuel 12, 13, I have sinned against Yahweh. I have sinned against the Lord. He wanted, he longed for God's will over his, and he ended up sinning as a result. Our second point here is long for God's will. We're to long for God's will. In 1 Samuel 24, we saw when David did wrong, when he cut that robe uh, of Saul's, his conscience convicted him. But now a godly person came to him and explained to him that he had done wrong. A godly person pointed out his sin and he responded immediately. We have to think, how do we respond when godly people point out our sin? How do we respond when we hear our weekend sermons? How do we respond when Pastor Mike's teaching convicts us? Do we become angry or hostile or defensive, saying, well, you don't know? Or do we respond rightly? Proverbs 9.8, Proverbs 9.8 says, reprove a wise man. Reprove, it could be translated rebuke or correct, Rebuke or correct a wise man, a wise woman, a wise person. So if you're rebuking or correcting or instructing or pointing out the sin or whatever, uh, to a wise person, the passage says, he will love you. A wise person, a wise woman loves correction. Because when she gets that correction, when that sin is pointed out, she's able to repent. She's able to have her feet washed. She's able to draw closer to Christ. The passage reveals that if someone corrects you and you respond rightly, you love that correction, that means that you're wise. When someone corrects you and you don't love that correction, it reveals that you might not be at a point of wisdom yet. I mean, thinking about this, David and his longing, are there things that, you long to possess? That as you look down from your palace roof, so to speak, and you see the things that others have, do you just think in your heart, if I only had that, my life would be so much better. I long for that thing. I want that thing. I need that. Colossians 3, 5 says, put to death what is earthly in you. This is Colossians 3, 5, put to death. I mean, get rid of it. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, and longing for what you don't have, which is idolatry, the passage says. Do you long for your will to be done or God's will? And when you find yourself in that place where you're longing for what you want, what you wish, what you desire, Repent, repent there and say, God, I wanna long for what you want for me and not what I want for myself. And when we get to the end of 2 Samuel 13, we're gonna see that uh, David had some problems in his life. Um, in fact, his family was a mess. There was a lot of family drama as a result of his sin. And by the end of 2 Samuel 13, we're going to see that one of his sons, Absalom, ended up taking the life of his other son, Amnon. And David was furious, and Absalom ended up in exile. He was uh, kicked out. He was estranged from David. He was kept from David's table, kept from the palace, kept from the city, just pushed out. The relationship had been broken and severed because of Absalom's sin. And in 2 Samuel 14, God used a woman. Uh, she's actually known as the wise woman of Tekoa. Uh, God used her to bring another parable to David. And she came with this parable. She came and got audience with David and said, I need your help. She said, I am a widow and I have two sons. And my two sons were fighting with one another and one of them struck the other so that he died. And she said, now the problem is my clan, the people around me, they want to take the life of my living son because he killed his brother. 
And she said to David, I'm in a terrible position. I don't have a husband. I had two sons. I lost one of them because the other struck him. And now my clan wants to take my surviving son. Can you help me? And David said to her in 2 Samuel 14, 11, he said, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. He's not going to die. Don't worry. I'll protect his life. I'll make sure that you're not left without husband and sons. And then she said to him two verses later in 2 Samuel 14, 13, she said, you know, in giving this decision, the king convicts himself. Inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. Wow. That's crazy if you think about it. This woman that comes to David and corrects him, calls him out on his sin. How well do you do when a very unlikely person corrects you or calls you out on your sin? Well, in 2 Samuel 14, 21, we see that David repented. David said to his commander, Joab, bring back Absalom. Bring him back. She's right. You're right. God's right. Well, what about your relationship drama, your family drama? Do you estrange people? Do you keep people at a distance from you? Or do you eagerly forgive? And that's the third point, eagerly forgive. That's what we're called to do. And this is super important to God that because we've been forgiven, we eagerly forgive. Uh, Matthew 5, for example. Jesus in Matthew 5, verses 21 through 24. Matthew 5, 21 through 24, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Don't murder, right? In verse 22, Jesus, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Do you have that anger in your heart towards someone? Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. He says, so the solution is this. So if you're offering your gift at the altar... And there you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. That's how important this is to Jesus. He's saying, don't do what you're doing. Drop what you're doing and go take care of this. Do whatever you can to make it right. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift your brother, your sister here at church, your husband, your children, your parents, your in-laws. Are you at odds with them? Are they estranged? Are they shut out from you? And you might be saying, well, you have no idea what they've done to me. Maybe I do, maybe I don't. But I guarantee you this, our motivation for the reconciliation, our motivation for being people who eagerly forgive, it's not because of what they have or haven't done to us, but because of what Christ has done for us. Jesus has forgiven us for everything, right? He's washed us. We saw he's made us clean. He's cleansed us from our sins. And I guarantee you that when we stand before God, we're going to find out that what they did to us was nothing in comparison to what we've done to God. And God, the perfect God, forgives us. And he calls us now to be people who eagerly forgive. Are you at odds with someone? Is there someone that you know you've shut out? Do what you can to work it out. Romans 12, 18 says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do what you can to work it out. Repent. Later in 2 Samuel 16 through 18, we're going to see this story unfold 
where David's own son Absalom decides to rebel against him and to set himself up as the king. He literally usurps his father's authority and he says that he is now the king. He takes the throne and a lot of people follow him. But there are a band of faithful people who stay with David. And you know, they stay with David because they were godly people. They realized that David was God's choice. And so they're going to stick with God's choice, even though everybody else was going with Absalom and rejecting David's kingship and following this new, young, hip king, right? Well, these people had to fight against Absalom and against the usurping of David's authority. And so they went out to fight for David, to fight for the Lord, really. And they ended up overthrowing Absalom and God worked things out so that Absalom was killed. And then David got the news of his son's death. And David entered into a place of extreme devastation. Uh, it was not normal devastation. He entered into a place of absolute hopelessness. In 2 Samuel 18.33, David cries out, Oh, my son, Absalom. My son, my son, Absalom. And then he says, Would I have died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David was so discouraged and so broken and so down by this, but in a degree to which God had not called him to grieve. And there's nothing wrong with grieving. We're going to see in our next lesson that David lamented the deaths of Saul and Jonathan. But here he lamented to an ungodly degree. And his friend, his commander, Joab, had to point this out to him. Uh, in 2 Samuel 19, verses 6 through 7, as David was wailing and moaning and got to this point of absolute hopelessness, a Joab comes to David and says, David, you have made it clear today that commanders and servants, those who have stuck together with you and fought for you, commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, then you would be pleased. He's saying, David, you have taken this out of control. If we were all dead and Absalom alive, you'd be happy. He says in verse 7, Joab, the commander, uh, rebuking David, so to speak, now therefore arise, go out, and speak kindly to your servants. He's saying to David, David, you're the king. Get up, stop wallowing, and act like the king. Stop uh, floundering in this state of hopelessness. And in 2 Samuel 9, 8, right after that, it says, then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. He responded, he repented. He responded to the words of his friends Joab, the correction that he gave him. And he said, you know what, you're right. I'm not doing the right thing here. I'm the king, I can't be sitting here in hopelessness. I've gotta have some attitude of joy. And the same thing is true for us. I mean, when we're tempted to feel absolutely hopeless and just broken down and worn out, we've got to have some attitude of joy. In fact, the scripture calls us to always rejoice. If we're Christians, the fourth point is always rejoice. We're called to always rejoice. And again, that doesn't mean that we're not going to experience great times of pain and suffering and brokenness. We're called to uh, act rightly in those times. We're called to weep with one another, to break with one another, and to support one another, but never with an attitude of hopelessness. Philippians 4.4 says to us as Christians, Rejoice in the Lord always. Paul says, again, I will say rejoice. We're to have that attitude of joy always. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.10, as he was explaining to the church there at Corinth all the hardship that he'd been through, he said that he was at a place where he was sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. 
as a Christian, we can have really hard, really difficult circumstances, and yet we're not hopeless. We're always rejoicing because of our relationship with Christ. And that's what Jesus explained to his disciples in Luke chapter 10, verse 20. In Luke 10, 20, we see that they had just come back from a season of extreme spiritual success. And they were excited and explaining that to Jesus. And he said, that's great. That's fantastic. But remember this. Don't rejoice, he said, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And if you're a Christian, that's not going to change, right? So you can always rejoice. We're never at a place of total hopelessness. When we find ourselves at that place where circumstances have beaten us down, when we're so discouraged, when we're so broken, when we're so despondent, we need to repent and remember our names are written down in the book of life. I don't need to be hopeless. I can rejoice. And then in the last chapters, the last chapters of 2 Samuel, uh, the last chapters, verses 21, 22, 23, and 24, are actually what has been called like an appendix. And the reason why is the author, the authors, uh, put them there at the end, not chronologically, but to kind of recap some important truths of David's career and some important truths that God wanted his readers to be reminded of as they finish up this amazing book. And in the very last chapter of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 24, the very end of the book, David gets this wild idea to number or to count all the people to count all the people that were in Israel. And his commander, his friend Joab, was like, whoa, are you sure you want to do this? Because it wasn't what he was doing, his motive for doing it. It wasn't right. It was like David saying, you know what? Let's go through and count all of our dollars. Let's count all of our resources. Let's just put out a spreadsheet of all of our skills and talents and abilities and resources and all the things that we have because his heart was tempted to not depend on God, but to depend on his stuff. And when he did that, when he was tempted to trust in those numbers, to trust in the stuff rather than God, he was convicted and he repented. In 2 Samuel 24.10, it says, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to Yahweh, David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Yahweh, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. His heart struck him again and he said, God, I've done wrong. I was tempted to depend on just to, to look at the strength of my resources, my might, my, my people here, instead of depending upon you. And that's so important to God, that we not depend on stuff, but instead that we depend on him. That for us as Christians, we depend on Jesus because in the end, the only thing that any of us really need, that any of us and all of us really need, is Jesus. So that's our fifth point here. Our final point is need Jesus. Need Jesus. We see uh, Paul again talking about this to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 1, 8, and 9. Uh, he was in a terrible place. Uh, as he was explaining to this church in Corinth of all the things that they had gone through, he says, we don't want you to be unaware of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. He said, we felt like we were going to die. We thought we were going to die. We wanted to die. He said in verse 9, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But he says there was a purpose for that. He says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 
He said we got to that point where we were so broken, so destitute, so that we could remember we need to depend on, we need to rely on, we need to need the one we need, and that is God. We need Jesus. And we use that word depending on God. Our uh, study this year is depending on God's promises. And we might think, what does that mean to depend on God? I was reading about uh, people who used to climb telephone poles, maybe that worked for the telephone company. I know my uh, little housing area is old and we still actually have telephone poles. We don't have our phone lines underground. So there's these giant poles, there's one in our yard that just goes so tall and these telephone lines are connected up there. And uh, people used to have to climb up these poles to work on the lines. And when they climbed up the poles, they would wear shoes with spikes in them and they had a belt. And they would have to lean into that belt and they would climb up the poles with these spiked shoes that would pull them up the poles. But if they didn't lean into the belt, they would fall and slide right down the pole. And as people learned how to do this telephone pole climbing, apparently there were people who didn't lean into the belt and would just depend on those shoes alone and slide right down that pole and get splinters in their body. In fact, it was funny, um, talking to uh, Mike Turner last night, who is our gatekeeper for women's Bible study on Tuesday night, he said that he used to actually train people to do this. Uh, He said when he was in the Marines, they would get those shoes and climb up poles and lean into that belt and he said that there was one woman who was in the Marines that they were training and she didn't lean into the belt right and he said she slid down that pole and got a giant splinter up her stomach. Yeah, I know. And, and you know, it's because they didn't lean into the belt. You know, it must feel awkward to be sitting there and to lean back into that belt, but that's what you need to do. You need to depend on the belt so you don't slide down the pole. And that's the same thing here. We need to depend on God. We need to depend on Jesus. We need to depend on his promises. And if you feel like you're maybe in a place where you've gotten some splinters spiritually, maybe you're not depending on Jesus, leaning into Jesus the way that you should. I mean, for me, depending on God really looks like believing God's word Believing God's promises, believing God's truth more than I believe myself, more than I believe my feelings, uh, my experiences, my take on things. When I look at life and I say, you know what, that's not what God says. God says this, God says that, I'm going to believe God. I'm gonna put my trust, I'm gonna lean my trust into what God says. That's when we're depending on God. That's when we're depending on his promises and needing Jesus. And as a result, we do what he's called us to do because we believe what he said. We believe what he said and we do things his way rather than our way. And that's really the crux of depending on God's promises. And if we find ourselves tempted to depend on anything else, even if it's our own skill, talent, ability, we need to repent. We need to repent. You know, if you want to become a woman after God's own heart, a woman who is just comfortable with repentance, is an expert in the skill of repentance. You know how you can do that? Come to women's Bible study. (laughs) Come to women's Bible study because as we dig through the chapters of 2 Samuel, we're going to be faced continually with the light of God's truth and his word. We'll have his Holy Spirit to reveal how we're doing as we look in the mirror of his word. And we have this great asset of all these sisters around us to encourage us, to exhort us, to convict us, to help us to be women who will repent and get clean, become women who are getting clean, not because we need to be saved. We are positionally cleansed when we are saved, but because we want to be sanctified. We want our feet washed. We want to continue to be cleansed and draw close to Jesus and be those women that he's called us to be. We all know that feeling of being really dirty 
and then getting washed, taking that shower, washing our hair, using that soap, feeling how it feels so good to be cleansed afterward. And David, he knew that too. In fact, he wrote about it in Psalm 51. Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2, after his sin, he said, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, have mercy on me. He said, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And then in verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me, wash me. He said in verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than the snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. He said, Lord, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. When we find ourselves in the wrong, when we find ourselves in sin, tempted to sin, we need to be like David and repent and ask God to cleanse us from our sin. And hopefully, our points will help us uh, as we think through these things, because if you look at the beginning of each one of your points and you look down the list, you'll see that it spells out C-L-E-A-N a reminder of our call to be clean. When we're weary, we need to continue to do good. When we find ourselves weary, let's repent and say, no, I'm gonna do good. When we're coveting, we long for God's will. When we're withholding reconciliation from people, we need to be eagerly forgiving. When we're becoming hopeless and despondent, we need to always rejoice. And when we're tempted to count on stuff, to count on anything, we remember that we need Jesus. We repent, we repent, we repent, and we become women after God's own heart. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for these wonderful women that you have sovereignly drawn here together to be here this morning, uh, to get excited about the truths that we're gonna learn in 2 Samuel. God, to think about the fact that you call us to repent and to be women of repentance, Lord God. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here who hasn't truly gotten to that point of surrendering her life to you, of entering into that initial relationship with you through repentance and faith, I pray that today would be her day, Lord God, that you would give her the courage that she needs to cross the line, Lord God, and to belong to you. And for the rest of us, God, I pray that we would just become quicker and quicker to repent. When we catch ourselves in sin, that we would say, Lord, God, wash me, cleanse me, help me to do things your way instead of my way. We thank you so much, Lord. We thank you for Jesus, Lord. We need Jesus. All of us, we need Jesus, and we pray in his precious name, amen.